0: This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of Sunny Side Up by Dan DeWitt, a book about a life-changing breakfast conversation that encourages men to live wholeheartedly for Christ. More information at thegoodbook.com. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. Today's podcast is a panel discussion on Paul's advice to Timothy to keep a close watch on the teaching. Kevin DeYoung moderated the discussion with Ligon Duncan, Bobby Scott, and Stephen Um. It was recorded at the Gospel Coalition's 2018 West Coast Conference in October. Last
1: night was keep a close watch on your life, and tonight is the other half of that verse from 1 Timothy chapter 4, keep a close watch on your doctrine. Keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Obviously, the two are related. So I have a number of questions for this esteemed panel, and for some of them, men, we'll, we'll have you go down and each respond, but for others, I may just call on one or may move us on to the next one so we can get through a number of these questions and not feel like we have to always go down the line. But I do want on this first one, and we will just go down, starting with, with Ligon, Stephen to Bobby, we're talking about keeping a close watch on your doctrine. So I want to know, have you been tempted by a particular doctrinal deviation at some point in your life? Either you were mistaken on a doctrine, and I don't mean you went from baptism to paedo-baptism or paedo-baptism to to (laughs) baptism, if if any of you did, but uh, a very serious heretical, heterodox sort of error? Or have you been tempted, you know, wrestled with such a deviation at some point in your life?
2: While I was at the University of Edinburgh doing my doctoral work, um, I read all of the works of James Barr. Uh Uh, James Barr was a, a professor at the University of Edinburgh for a number of years. He wrote a very important book. Stephen will be Familiar with because of his New Testament studies called The Semantics of Biblical Language, which is actually a very helpful book in many ways. But Barr was an ex evangelical, and ex evangelicals are notoriously antagonistic towards the gospel, towards a right. high view of scripture, etc. He was a helpful critic of Scottish Bardianism, but a, a relentless critic of Bible believing Christianity. Wrote a a large book called Fundamentalism, which was just a broadside assault on a high view of scripture. And um, I read that book, I probably had more notes in the margin than I had, uh, than than he wrote in the book. And, um, but, but, Reading all, and, and I felt like I needed to read his book for apologetic reasons, because I knew there would be evangelical pastors that would be disturbed by some of the things that he was saying about the Bible. But it was a it was a soul killing time for me. It was a it was a very dry season. Interestingly, at the same time, I was reading Ned Stonehouse's biography mm-hmm. of J. Gresham Machen. And I was at the point in that biography where Stonehouse is describing Machen going to study in Germany with Hermann, who was the major liberal scholar in uh, Europe at at that time. And Machen went through a real crisis of faith. Well, I didn't, I didn't quite go through what Machen went through, but it was a it was a very very hard time for me. I was never tempted to deviate from uh, Orthodox Christian doctrine, but I was very much tempted to doubt. Yeah. And and very frankly, it was the faithful preaching of my pastor in the local church, the wonderful witness of godly Christian men and women in the congregation who had no idea what spiritual struggles that I was going through, but I saw a reality in their lives. I often thought to myself, there is no way you could be like you are if there is no Holy Spirit. You know, the, just, the, just the witness of their lives, the sweet witness of their lives. I saw the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And then a professor uh, who had gone through some of the same kind of questions that I had gone through, and so he was help, able to help me through those things. That's probably the closest thing in my experience, mm, Kevin. That's good. Uh, that's
3: good. Stephen? I remember uh, before going to do doctoral work. Uh, I think it was John Piper or somebody told me he said you 're going to go through a moment where where you will experience uh, doctoral blues. So what do you mean mm-hmm. by that there 'll be a moment when you 're doing your work you 're going to get so caught up in the details and you 're going to feel the pressure from the academy uh, not that you 're going to abandon your faith but you 're going to wonder why you 're there. I certainly went through that. Uh-huh. I had a great supervisor, Richard Balcom, and he was helpful but I remember when I had to present a few papers, uh, one at the Brit- British uh, New Testament uh, conference, which is the British version of uh, SBL. And, um, and I was there uh, presenting um, some, some kind of water spirit motif in, in John's Gospel, in John chapter four. And I had these scholars that I had revered for so many years sitting there. I, I felt the weight. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, should I go ahead and present it? whether you're clearly going to know that I am uh, believing in Jesus as God crucified and, and, and that, that I have a, an eschatological, Christological perspective on this passage, or am I going to kind of walk, walk myself back on the paper that I had presented to give? Uh-huh. I, 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 I felt the weight of that. Not that I, I wanted to abandon my faith, but I wanted to please... The people, the scholars that I that that I revered, and so uh, that that's, that's there. That's for real. That that's people pleasing. That's trying to get the approval from from man because you're you're in scholarship. It's actually the pressure is more intense, as yeah. you know, Lee. Like, yeah. And um, and um, and I just said, Lord, I'm I'm just gonna and this you're allowed to do this in 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 uh, Britain. Just read off your notes. So so I just kind of read off the notes, and I said, I don't care what they think. I'm I'm just gonna read what I've presented and um, yeah, then they start bombarding you and, and, and challenging what you have stated. Are are you serious that you actually believe this about this particular place? And, and um, so that, that's, that's one place. And another place would be on, um, in New Testament scholarship, you, people look at you funny if, if you have a, a, uh, an orthodox view of Paul and the law.
2: And they're like, "Are you ki-
3: really like you, you? You don't understand that we're supposed to have this new perspective on Paul." Yeah, I don't. I, I actually, I, I don't. And and, um, and and I'll tell you why your position is wrong. Um, but but the press the pressure is intense, and um, and um, so we I, th- I think we all go through that at times when we. It's not that we want to stop believing in what we want to believe, but but uh, we're, we're tempted to not say everything we want to say because we're afraid we're going to get rejected.
1: Yeah, that's good. And, and it's not always just, you know, these stories are with academia, but it's not always that. It can be people to the left of us, people to the right of us, people in our local ministerial fraternal, people in our own family. It's those circles often of people we respect and want to please that then our commitment to Christ becomes difficult. Bobby? Uh, There was a season
4: when I was a young believer um, doing ministry at UCLA when my pastor and I was at Grace Community Church for seven years. John wrote this groundbreaking book, The Gospel According to Jesus. And it was dealing with particularly kind of a dispensational heresy that was coming out of easy believism. Mm -hmm. There was just so much dichotomy between just sanctification and justification that some were saying that once you prayed the prayer, you can completely apostatize and reject Jesus. And, and, and still you will lose your inheritance, but you'll go to, to heaven as a were, the kingdom of God. Um, and we were on campus. We all got labeled as attenders of Grace Community Church as heretics. So we kind of all went to our Bibles and the Lord led us just to study through a biblical theology of trying to wrestle through mm-hmm. how to answer those objections, not wanting to front load the gospel, that you've got to do all these things and we do all these works first and then you'll have real faith. And so we were like really struggling trying to balance grace and, and the idea of the, the, the following sanctification that will come. And so it was a season where things weren't clear and how I would articulate grace in the gospel. And I think the Lord led us to a safe place um, instead of front-loading the gospel just to recognize who Jesus really is, that he is Lord. You're trusting by God's grace, the one who is Lord and, and he wants... He has saved us progressively, transforms our lives and brings our lives incrementally in submission to His Lordship. He does all that. So so it it was was a struggle for a season, trying to work through through that, and it was hard,
1: especially as we were being labeled as heretics on campus. It's hard. It's hard. Let me ask a, a couple of generalizing questions, knowing that you're, you're not expected to be experts for an entire region of the country. But just as I, I look down here, I think we have someone who spent a, a lot of his life in the Southeast. And we have Stephen who has been pastoring for more than a decade in New England and Boston. And we have Bobby who's here in Southern California. Just real quickly, what might be a doctrinal danger for your kind of region because we're humans and there's similarities more than differences but sometimes in these different pockets there's there's different idols and there's different potential doctrinal errors so
3: Steven start with you sure uh, I mean what you would expect of Boston is is, is what you would expect um, I think uh, it doesn't require a whole lot of courage for a Christian to accommodate the baseline cultural narrative in a place like Boston. So if the baseline cultural narrative uh, has a certain view of justice, of sexuality, uh, it's it's very easy for a Christian not to be counterintuitive, but to simply accommodate what the culture has to say about that. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that there aren't appropriate points of contact, or, or a, a place of identification. But, but I think it, it requires courage to say something that's countercultural. cultural uh, uh, and, and I would say the same thing, if you are in, down in the South, it requires greater courage to speak into whatever the baseline cultural narrative is in your setting, which will be very different than mine. And, and, and that's why, as I was saying earlier, if if you are if you have a, an understanding of the gospel, uh, then whatever your social context is going to be, you're always going to seem a little right to the left and a little left to the right on the ideological spectrum. Um, and um, and so and I, I think that's a hel- healthy thing. And so for for me, it would be on sexuality, and it would be on the issue of social justice. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, would, that would be the challenge.
1: And in any context, and you've mentioned this, and, and Tim Keller has brought this out before too, there's going to be elements in a culture where there may be some overlap. And so you can say true things. You could say a whole lot of true things in Boston that Bostonians would think, you know, that's wicked awesome. You know, we like that in the gospel, but not… Awesome. I know. I didn't want to, you know, <laughs> overdo it. Uh, and the same thing with, with other parts of the country. Lig, different set of circumstances. What might you say yeah, for the Southeast? You, you
2: still have a lot of nominal Christianity in the Southeastern United States, whereas in, in, the, in the Northeast, in the Northwest, that is almost dead as a doornail. You know, there's no cultural capital in nominal right. Christianity in by and large in those parts of the country anymore. We're, we're 20 years behind the culture typically in the Southeast. And so it's, there's still some cachet in nominal Christianity that manifests itself in a variety of ways. One is in, it's very squishy doctrinally. It's kind of yeah. like they don't care. Uh, the other thing is it tends to be very experiential. So it's about a cathartic, experience every Sunday, you know, and so you have people sort of running in herds from one cathartic experience to another, so from one big mega church in the area to the other and then faithful pastors in that context are just so discouraged because they're preaching their hearts out, they're preaching the Bible and the and the herd is running from one That's superficial, right. glib, I mean you've got this in Charlotte, my brother you know all the bells and whistles are in this in is, in this zero intelligent zero doctrinal zero biblical kind of zone other than that um, it's really good other than that it's really good yeah, yeah. so um <laughs> so uh, you know that that is a that's a reality if you're a bible believing pastor in the southeastern united states you've got that reality surrounding you everywhere and you've got to you know you don't want to become cranky in that setting i'm going to give i'm going to gather the 13 faithful people in this city and we're going to have a pure church you know so you you want to reach out to your culture but you don't want to cave in because what often happens is you start accommodating the culture there for the sake of growing your church and then suddenly you're in the same soup that you're concerned about. So that definitely is one of the things you have to think about in the Southeast. Yeah,
1: that, that, is, that is right on.
4: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm limited in talking about just the, the, the church experience on the, the West Coast in general. I, I spent so much time in, in uh, the black church context. And for us in the black church context, that the uh, Pentecostalism was born here. Azusa Street revival in 1906. And that along with uh, just the, the the aftermath of the civil rights movement, there was just so much power that the church experienced politically that the black church had to be everything for the entire community. So you get there 's one stop and you represent it in every single way And because there was so much political clout that the church gained through the civil rights movement. Um, it, it, it was a marriage almost and mm-hmm. uh, we need a divorce right now. Uh, so power <laughs> corrupts and, Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And so you, the legacy of some of that are the Reverend Al Sharptons and the Jesse Jacksons and the social gospel. And, and when you tether that together with almost a, a kind of awe theological uh, context, that there aren't real limits to the Pentecostalism, so it embraces T.D. Jakes the same way it would uh, a, a sound expositor. So I met, I went this, a few months ago. I was at, I live in Inglewood. It's near LAX. I was at the Inglewood ministerial prayer breakfast and it must've been a couple hundred pastors there, but also every politician in the yeah. was there. And, and the speaker was uh, an unbeliever, a, a celebrity unbeliever. And he brought the word that day. And, uh, <laughs> and I like the guy like Tavis Smiley, but it was Tavis Smiley. Oh. He's a part of the me too thing too. Yeah. And uh, so it's, there is there's, an, there's a part of the church that culturally I think is conservative when it comes to the biblical truth but because uh, it's not really grounded in sound doctrine it really can be
1: tossed here and there by every wind and doctrine yeah. so
4: that, that's the climate that we have to fight
1: against you know that you, that that's really helpful and it leads into the next question which I was going to ask, and you already answered it, was just to speak a little bit, knowing again, not, not monolith, not asking you for to speak for everyone that fits a certain ethnicity, but Bobby's already spoken very poignantly about challenges in the African American community. Particular idols or doctrinal dangers in, in the Asian American community, the Scottish American community, we'll let you speak for... <laughs> <laughs> or speak m- more broadly, but uh, th- there are sometimes particular dangers and in- this gives us an opportunity to speak into them.
3: I, I probably have more Caledonian cultural tendencies than I- than league does. <laughs> sure. so. But, um, yeah, I would say... Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right, that's right. Uh, there are some McKims. Yeah, Problematic. I would, I would say uh, for, for Asian-Americans, especially for Far Eastern Asian-Americans, uh, education is idolatry. Okay? Education is idolatry. Now, I don't want to question the, uh, the, the good intentions that parents have in wanting their children to, to thrive. Right? Every parent has that instinct. But Asian parents... It's, it's kind of, it's uberized, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, when it comes to education, because they heard somewhere at some point that, that if you receive the kind of educational um, training here in this country, then you, make, you can make it. So, so, but along with that comes a great amount of uh, commitment and devotion and pressure. Yeah. And I think that there isn't a whole lot of room and space for grace uh, in Asian American paint, uh, parenting. And, um, and I, and I've struggled with this over the years and by God's grace, I've gotten better. So my eldest daughter, daughter struggled the most because of the pressure that I put on her. Uh, and my youngest one, she's, she's reaping the benefits that, that I got out out of my system with the first one. So, (laughs) um, so I just expect less from my youngest daughter. Um,
1: I found yeah. after seven children that is yeah. the secret
3: to successful yeah. parenting, right. low right. expectations. Right, right, that's right. That's right. Uh, well, I mean, it's, this, is not only an, this is not only an Eastern or Asian thought. I, Mar- Margaret Mee, the, the mother of yeah. anthropology out of Columbia, she said that the, uh, the following generation, uh, uh, the. the, the uh, uh, the preceding generation always wants the, the following generation to surpass yep. what they've accomplished, and there's, I mean, there's nothing necessarily intrinsically morally wrong with that, uh, but the idolatrous aspect is when we want to make that too important, right? Idolatry is uh, taking something, taking a good thing and make, making it an ultimate thing. So um, oftentimes most of our, our idols are good things. So I think that's probably the biggest issue in the Asian American Christian community.
1: Yeah. Lig, one, one, one of the issues sometimes in white culture or just majority culture is the thinking we don't have a culture, we're just sort of neutral and, you know, other people have interesting things, we're just sort of doing it all vanilla when there is, a, no pun intended, but there's a culture. What, what, speak into some of the experience of the majority culture and some blind spots, doctrinal dangers we have.
2: Well, I, I, I mean, you've, you've touched on it. I, I think that, uh, first of all, by the way, I think historically probably the idea of whiteness is a 19th century idea. Yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't I couldn't prove that historically to you right now, but I've been working on this a little bit, and I'm I'm pretty sure that idea is a 19th century idea, which ought, that, that needs to ring some bells for us, and that means that in our current discussion today. That can be both a helpful and a very unhelpful category, right. depending right. on how it's being deployed. It was, of course, in the 19th century developed as a category to protect cultural superiority. Now it's being used as a category to critique cultural spe- uh, superiority. And in both ways, it's actually unhelpful. Uh, so that's another story for another day. But I do think people in my socioeconomic setting in the church. I mean, let's let's not try and figure out all the world's problems. Let's just talk about believers for right now. People, believers in my cultural socioeconomic setting and with my skin color, very often assume that everybody else in the world inhabits the space that they've inhabited. Uh, Because we have a certain cultural capital and cachet which we simply assume is the way it is. So we, we tend to be very, very comfortable with folks that don't look like us who are happy to assimilate to how we do things. And we tend to think that folks who don't look like us, who don't assimilate to the way that we do, they're, they're weird. And, um, and in, in all of that, we are assuming that the way that we are doing things is normal and the way that everybody else is doing things is not. But we are often unaware of how pervasively we assume that. And, uh, and, and hence, we really need to work to be self-aware about our own assumptions. We really need to work. And, and honestly, this is something, this has only been dawning on me in the last 10 years. I'm 50, I'm almost 58 years old. Um, I was so much the frog in the kettle mm that I was oblivious to this and would have been resistant to it if somebody had tried to, to help me see it. And a, a lot of this, uh, a, a lot of the Lord's work on me in this area is through wonderful gospel friendships with Bible-believing brothers and sisters with whom I share all of the great convictions of my life but who don't look like me and whose backgrounds are totally different from me. And suddenly in, in making friends, in beginning to love somebody different from you, who shares all your theological convictions and being able to see the world through their eyes and being able to appreciate their concerns and their perspectives and letting them help me see me. That has been incredibly important in my life. And it's the, the Lord just has just kindly been slowly, you know, putting me into that setting where I could have some self-awareness that I've just not had because I've lived in a cultural situation that allowed me to be with people like me and from my background most of the time. I mean, this is one of the real problems in America. We talk about America being a melting pot. We are not. Uh, what we 've got a lot of different racial and and social and economic groups and categories we don 't mix very much at all and um, and and that means that we live segregated lives and w- when you live a segregated life it 's really hard to enter into the experience of a person who hasn't uh, who 's yeah. not from the same background yeah. that you are yeah. and I just think we need to be super aware of that uh, it 's not about it 's not about compromising convictions. It's not about, you know, seeking some secular framework to, to manage reality. It's about how, how do you, as a Bible-believing Christian committed to historic Christian doctrine, how can we as believers relate to one another in a better, right. more healthy, God-honoring, brother-and-sister-honoring way? And if, you, if you're not even aware of the problem, you can't
3: be part
1: That's of the right. solution. Right. So. Bobby, did you have a verse? No, no. Well,
3: save it. You'll have a verse for later. Can I just, <laughs> hey, can I just follow up just for on later. that? Can I follow up sure. on that? So for those of you who are bicultural, um, it's actually, spiritually speaking, advantageous mm-hmm. that you are bicultural in this regard, right? If the Bible says we are sojourners, uh, that we are resident aliens, right? We belong to a commonwealth, which is citizens of the commonwealth of the kingdom of God. But we're also uh, temporary residents here on earth. Um, because psychologists call this frame switching. Okay? Frame switching is you're able to look into a situation through the lens of one particular frame. So if you are bicultural, you can look at it from one pers- perspective and it can be helpful. But in another perspective, you're looking at it through a different frame. And, and, um, and so if you are always looking at reality from your home culture, whatever that might be, then the way you look at the host culture will be framed by the influence that you've received, um, which means we have cultural cultural preferences and customs. We all do, and we, when we absolutize that, then it becomes a cultural prejudice. So we all have different preferences when it comes to time. I'm from the East Coast, so I'm a lot more uptight about time than I would imagine those of you who are from the West Coast. That's, that's not even a cultural, that's, a, that's not a racial cultural difference, that's just a regional yeah, yeah. Some of them
1: just woke up.
3: Yeah, that's right. Even... that's right. That's <laughs> right. Right? I guess that's you, not You you, like, know, you know the biases so. that Easterners yeah. have, Northeasterners. You know, we, we, we assume that we work harder and we're mm. more punctual. And so we're going to be uptight. We're going to look at somebody. So so if, if I'm officiating a wedding and there is, I'm officiating a, a biracial marriage. And so on one side represents uh, dominant racial culture and the other one is, let's say, uh, a, a non-Western culture. So if the wedding starts at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, everyone on this side will be there at 2.40, 2.45. (laughs) But there's no one here on this side. And so right around 2.55, everyone's getting nervous and saying, what happened, did this person abandon the wedding? And then they start coming at 3.10, 3.15, and they're happy because it's a wedding, and all the people over here are uptight and they look angry or very subdued, like they're at a funeral. (laughs) <laughs> because what they're saying is, this is very rude of you to come here. It's irresponsible for you to come here late. Whereas the people over here say, hey, look, it's a wedding, relax. People have different sensibilities when it comes to time. Now, I mean, I like to be prompt wherever I go. However, what I'm saying is, if you take a cultural preference, such as time, and you absolutize it, it becomes cultural prejudice. And, and what Lig was saying is so true. We do it this way, why can't you do it this way? Yeah. And, uh, and then we start demonizing people yeah. who are from yeah. a different tribe. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Let's segue into uh, an important question. We're talking about keeping a close watch on your doctrine. One of, the, one of the doctrinal controversies, one of the doctrinal elephants in the evangelical room at the moment is how we should think about social justice. And many of us have read discussions online. Some of us have been a part of those. Uh, All of us read the statement that came from Pastor John and from others and all count him a friend and a mentor and with great appreciation. So we're not speaking to that statement in particular, but grateful for the opportunity to speak to the issues because they matter. So let me put the question to any of you who can jump in this way. I want to ask it twofold. First, give me a definition of social justice that you don't like. If social justice means X, I'm not for it. And then we'll go on. But if social justice means Y, then I think Christians ought to be engaged in it. We'll, leave, we'll set aside whether it's a, it, you should use the category or it has too much baggage. We'll save that. But just start, give me, if it means X, I, I don't want any part of it.
2: Uh, to, to, to give an example, um, the, sort of uh, the, the humanist approach to social justice would be something like this. Any social, economic, gender, or racial inequality or disparity is the result of injustice, okay? And that's crazy. And that, that you know, and, and so I, I think I think sure. some of the some of the friends that, that were involved in, in the social justice statement are are really afraid that that kind of thinking, which is pervasive in the university culture, the academic culture of our of of our country, part of the political left, they're afraid of that influence in evangelicalism. That's a bad definition. Uh, and, and by the way, it's, it's, a, it's a definition that establishes an impossible goal to ever achieve as well. Uh, and, and therefore, it, be, it becomes one of those don't waste a crisis kind of things. It can be used to hammer any nail into any, you know, piece of wood it, that it, you want to hammer no into. And
1: no one really thinks that when it comes to it because no, no one really, no one then goes to the disparities in the number of men in prison versus women that that automatically equals right. injustice. Now, what you, what you haven't said is that the disparities may be the result yeah. of injustice. Yeah. You're simply saying yeah. the equation, there's a disparity, that means yeah. injustice And, and on I every think category. most
2: reasonable people, you know, believers or not, would look at it and say, well, some of those disparities probably are and others are not. And how you go about figuring that out, yeah. it takes some hard work. So that's one yeah. component. Yeah. Other yeah. components of add, a bad yeah, definition. A
3: couple of thoughts. First is... Um, if we talk about justice and there's no forgiveness, uh, then, then there's no point of reference with the justice that the Bible speaks about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? Now, good. again, I'm not saying that we should not address injustices. Yeah. Absolutely so. But, but if, if there's a form of a, 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 a position on social justice that is devoid of any forgiveness, it doesn't align with, with the justice that is emphasized in Scripture. That's good. Secondly, um, when you look at the book of Micah, right? So I wrote a little book on the book of mm-hmm. Micah. It's 80% judgment. And after a while, you're like, <laughs> you know, is there any, any hope, Lord? <laughs> you know, is there any? And then we kind of get, we see glimpses of it. And then at the very end, right, the great pass. who is a God like you, right? The Micah, that's what the word means. And, um, and, but what you find is there was exploitation, there was oppression, there was the manipulation of power. There was lack of concern for the poor. But all of that in the book of Micah is connected to idolatry. Right? So to talk about social injustice uh, separated from idolatry is not a, a, a perspective that the Bible supports. As it's if good. that there's some sort of a framework of social injustice that's separate. So, it, so I, I wrote in, in in the book, I said, we love the idea that God is a just God, we just don't want him to be just towards us. Right. Yeah. So, so that is, oh, bring judgment to that tribe over there. Yeah. But we don't, want, we don't want that to fall on yeah. us. And that's working with the assumption that we're far more self-righteous than than others on the other side. That's good. Those are really good. Bobby, what goes into a bad definition?
4: Yeah, I I think when it turns into just class warfare that, uh, and I I, I get it that our brothers could be sensitive to that, that there's a particular victimized class, and they're all morally superior. There's an oppressive class, and if you're part of that class, you're all the villain, and so um, you could have women now, the superior class, and all men are evil you know, blacks are the victims, all white people are evil. Yep. And so when it just turns into class warfare, then I
1: think uh, that's really, that's, that's problematic, obviously, for believers. So just summarizing that, then the social justice Christians ought not to be for is the kind that just in a, just a totalizing way says every disparity is injustice. You know, I like what you said, Stephen, you talk about injustice and we never talk about the gospel of forgiveness for those who commit injustice. There's no connection to the vertical dimension, the spiritual idolatries, or that sort of class warfare, or just making people the product of their class or position in some sort of hierarchy. You're nothing but a white person. You're nothing but an eight. You're nothing but that sort of social justice. So we could go on. But for the sake of time, the transition, what would we mean by social justice in a way that we would want to commend it to Christians? What would would go in that definition? Any of you?
2: Loving your neighbor. Uh, So every, every gospel preacher wants men and women, and boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as He's offered in the gospel, and people who are so converted, we want them to live as Christians. And the the most quoted Old Testament command in the New Testament is love your neighbor. Leviticus,
1: and if you look right. at
2: Leviticus 19, it's very clear that that command entails responsibilities in the family, mm-hmm. in the congregation, and in the community, mm-hmm. even with strangers to the community. And that means that any good pastor wants his people to live as Christians in relation to the people that they engage with in the society, treating them in the way that they would want to be treated. And that means treating them justly, treating them fairly. Uh, Dick Halverson, who was the chaplain of the Senate, pastor of Fourth Pres in Bethesda, Maryland, tells the story of a, of a man Uh, who owned a lot of car dealerships in the D.C. area, who came to faith in Christ, started attending his church, and came to him one day and said, uh, Dr. Halverson, I'm going to start giving out tracts, gospel tracts, to the people that come to my car dealerships. Well, Dr. Halverson had heard that this man's service departments were notoriously uh, unfair. They ripped people off. And Dr. Halverson, as a pastor said, you know what, brother, it might be better if your service departments didn't rip people off. That might be, that may be the best Christian witness that you That's could right. give. Well, what was he asking him to do? He was asking him to be socially just. Yeah. He was asking him to act with righteousness in the way that he related to uh, the society. Every pastor wants that. Right. We want our people to conduct themselves with righteousness and with, with love and with concern for the well-being of others. Mm-hmm in the way that we relate to them. Every pastor wants that. So that's one way to define it. Yeah,
1: any catechism on the Ten Commandments from the Presbyterian Reformed tradition is going to give significant social entailments right. of how we love our neighbors right. as ourselves.
3: Right, right. I think, I think it's important for us to distinguish between… Uh, so I can appreciate the sentiment of those people who are concerned about the the mainline cultural narrative about social, right. yeah. social justice. I, I, I can absolutely empathize with that. Um, and, and, and I want to uh, uh, follow up on what, um, uh, what Lick said, and, and sorry, if I'm just reading a definition that I have in my book here, okay? So let me just read it. Uh, when we think of doing justice, we typically think of something like performing retribution. Most people equate justice with punishing wrongs. That's certainly part of what justice entails, but it's actually much broader than that. It is certainly giving the perpetrators their due, but doing justice is also giving those who cannot stand up for themselves, the victims, the poor, the vulnerable, the voiceless, their due as well. It is more than only punishing wrong. It is creating a situation in a society where everything is right, a society where every last person in it, including the most vulnerable and the weakest, can flourish and thrive. That's what doing justice according to the Bible really means. And so that's essentially what it means is you need to love your neighbor. right? What does it mean to love your neighbor? Regardless of where where that person has come from, whatever the background is, uh, that, and especially the, for those who have been uh, marginalized and who are vulnerable and who don't have a voice. And so when we think about Justice, we can't just talk about purely about retribution and and, and punishing the perpetrator. That's
1: really good. good. Bobby, what
4: would you add to this working
1: good
3: definition? Yeah,
4: I I would just add a couple of Bible verses, and and we've already alluded to them without directly stating them. But in uh, in Leviticus chapter 19, you shall do no injustice and judgment, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor really, my, my co-pastor always says that uh, I hear him say from time to time that lady justice has a blindfold on for a reason. That's right. That um, there's, God is not a respecter of persons. And so justice looks equitable. It just, it's gonna, the punishment is going to match the crime. But then Stephen, I think, just as he was talking, I, I, was, I was thinking about you know, Deuteronomy chapter 10, but it also is concerned about the reality in the broken, fallen world, you know, you're going to have people who will abuse their power. Yep. Uh, you will have, therefore, real victims. Uh, when we talk about sex trafficking, they are real victims. Right. I got a call uh, a couple of months ago that uh, there was a, a lady who bumped into one of our church members. She wasn't a Christian, didn't attend that church. She just reached out to our members and says, please have your church members pray. Hmm. My 15-year-old daughter was, you know, has disappeared. And uh, I think coming home from school, someone grabbed her. Forced her into prostitution. Her older sister is driving a bus and sees her on a street corner, jumps off the bus to go, and a pimp beats her up. They go to the police, and a couple days later, her daughter is rescued. She's a real victim. Um, and so what Deuteronomy says in chapter 10, he executes justice for the orphan. I'm reading Deuteronomy 10:18. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. And so God had the, the laws of gleaning that, that is, is right, I use justice as a sentiment for right, That that is right just to be mindful of your neighbor and love your neighbor, your poor neighbor, so that he can, he can eat. And Jesus says in the New Testament that there are weightier matters to the law, and he talks about justice so that we can love our neighbors and do what's right. And I think in our historical context, I think the elephant in, in the room is like, war. If you have slavery for 250 years and you have Jim Crow for another 100 years, there might be some aftermath to that where there are certain disparities that systematically work this way into our culture. And as Christians, we would be, why would I not want to, if I can, uh, to to, to show, yeah, to to, to deal with that. So I I think the fruit of our preaching, if we're going to do good deeds, Mm -hmm. and I think we looked at that at the end of... Um, Second Timothy chapter three that the that, that we want to go out and do good and part yeah. of doing good is doing justice.
3: Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, Kevin and I really appreciate this one writer, Jonathan Haidt, who is an uh, mm. uh, ethics uh, professor at Stern, a business school at N- NYU. I really think that he is his work is the modern day late modern ver- day version of uh, Bloom's Closing of the American Mind yeah, and right. Bella's Habits of the Heart. He is brilliant. Um, he's a moral psychologist, world class. So his, his most well-known book is *The Righteous Mind*. The Righteous Mind, but a book just came out three weeks ago, and right. it's brilliant. It's called *The Coddling of the American Mind*, and he talks about the the over fragility that you find in uh, in the most uh, selective and elite schools. And he he's not he's not Christian. He's probably a bipartisan, a little little left of center, um, a nominal Jew. And but what what he talks about is is this. He says that when we think about uh, people who are in the other tribe, we no longer have rights to be able to disagree in the public square. Because, because once you start using language or start thinking about things, using critical thinking and using provocative language and disagreeing with someone in the public square, you don't have permission to do that because it's a, it's a trigger warning. And they have medicalized uh, our language in saying this is not a safe place, the harm principle and, 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 and the like. And so um, when, when we talk about the uh, issue of justice, what we need to do is people say, do you have difficulty talking about judgment and wrath and hell in a city such as Boston? I said, no, there hasn't been a time it's easier for me to be able to talk about these doctrines uh, from the pulpit than now in Boston. Yeah because i can i can i can say you know all of you no ma- it doesn't matter where you come from there are certain injustices that we can all ag- agree on Pederasty.
2: yeah All
3: right. we know it's evil it's wrong racism oppression rape all right, so so we can it doesn't matter what your political or ideological uh, perspective is we can all be in agreement about that so so when, you, when the Bible teaches about justice and about hell and about judgment, you, you have a natural point of reference. You say, God hates injustice. God is agreeing with you that these are evil things. Now, what you need to do is you need to let them know that the the biblical narrative about this is far more exhaustive, which now includes right. every single one of us, as Sultanistan has said. Right, evil goes through every single yeah. human heart. So, so no one is going to be spared. If you're crying out for judgment, for the other person and the other side, the other tribe, well, guess what? You're going to get consumed too. And and then right. then you have to bring people to a point where they are longing for for a just and holy God who is going to bring just justice in the midst of injustice, but being able to spare us in the process. And then they'll start hungering for the grace of God.
1: Which is Paul's movement from Romans one to Romans yeah. two. Yes. I mean, precisely what yeah. he's doing. Oh, y- you want God to be against those things? Right, right. He is, right. and he's against you for a good reason. <laughs> Let, let's finish this way. Okay, we are down to our last second, so this will be very brief. But thinking for church leaders, there's some pastors here, and then there's uh, a a lot of, uh, almost everyone probably involved in some kind of ministry. Just think real quickly in 30 seconds, what are some habits you've developed to keep a close watch on your doctrine? And maybe one way to get at that are just some books. Could be a book like that, that's not a Christian book or, or a classic. So, habits slash books that you found helpful to keep you doctrinally lined up. Lake.
2: Well, I mean, obviously, just stay in God's Word and, and have a plan for how you're staying in God's Word. You know, and in, in my, my plan changes all the time. I was asked just a couple of days ago, what are you in right now? Well, I'm in the Psalms. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm working through the Psalms constantly. There have been times when I've been working systematically through the Bible, or sometimes it's working through the ESV Bible study notes for First and Second Chronicles. It, it changes all the time, but you've got to, you know, you've got to be in the Word for yourself. doesn't matter how much other ministry you're doing. You've got to be in the Word for yourself. It's a, there, and, and if you don't plan for it, you won't be, so be in right. the Word. And then I, I just, I love to read historic Christian creeds and confessions. Because as much as I love to read Augustine and Calvin and you know, some of the great heroes of the faith, they are, they're they're just one man. And the creeds and confessions are the confessions of whole bodies of believers. And uh, I just, and and they are rich for, you know, so, you know, our friend Pete Lilback and company produced a whole volume of Reformation creeds and confessions regarding the doctrine of yeah, scripture. scripture. Right. And uh, I lo- and uh, and then there's a there's a wonderful four four, four volume set of um, reformed creeds and confessions from the 16th century uh, following that uh, Denison uh, yeah. did. Yeah. Uh, and RHT so I just I love yeah. to read those kinds of things because they summarize basic. Christian doctrine as believers have, have held, to, held to them for the last 2,000 That's
3: great. years. That's great. I'm a fellow Presbyterian, so love catechisms. <laughs> uh, but I would say, and, and somebody, a friend of mine shared this in our pre-conference, um, and it was a quote from C.S. Lewis in First Things. He says, if we try to make the second thing the first thing, yeah. then it fails to obviously be the first yeah. thing, but it also fails to be the second thing. Yeah. And so I think that when we don't, when we don't make the gospel Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, says, I deliver to you that which is of first importance, which is the gospel, and we start making other things central, even though they're important, justice, sex trafficking, um, uh, piety, whatever these issues are, all important uh, concerns that a Christian should have, but but the center is not the gospel, which... Which shapes everything that we look at, all of these second things, and secondary things. Um, and I think that's when we're going to lose our way. So we need to uh, have our 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 eyes uh, on Scripture, on sound doctrine, as we're look as we're seeing here in Second uh, Timothy, uh, and to be able to to say, I'm going to stand firmly on this foundation, which has a seal, this is the word of God, which reveals to us uh, what Christ has accomplished in history and what the promises are of God's word. And we keep standing on that. And then, then we won't s- swerve from the truth. And we'll make that the first thing. The first thing is the first thing. And let everything else uh, flow out from that uh, to be the second and the third and the fourth That's
1: thing. great. So keeping our doctrinal commitments in some sort of proportion. I always said one of the things I loved about my church is I felt like the sermons that were most central, most foundational and fundamental were the sermons that the people loved the most. I took that to be a, a sign of a, of a good church. You don't want a church that says, and that was sin and salvation again, that was that was cross, and now yeah, we can all do it in a clumsy way, but people that say, when are you going to get back to the millennium? When are you going to talk about homeschooling? When are you going to talk about the, the issues that are out there? Well, there is a time to talk about all those things as they connect, but you want people to say, yes, I want to hear about the Trinity and the gospel in Christ. Bobby, give us the last word. Yeah, um, I would say,
4: in addition to what has been said, reading biblical theologies, Paul House has a really friendly Old Testament survey. It's out a print. I'm, I think the name of it is Old Testament survey. So we can keep learning how to think in biblical categories. I just think in this information age that we are in right now, we are just bombarded with talking points from yeah. the conservative left and right, Fox News, mm. CNN, yep. and I think that's that's dominating our minds more than we think. Yeah. And so when we enter conversations, more than coming out with a, a biblical worldview and perspective, we're coming out with our tribal worldviews, and it's causing us to clash. Um, and the last thing, and this is, I would say is. Deuteronomy eight, 8, it's just that we really don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that we really have to, out of a spiritual hunger, keep fighting to, to, to keep ourselves in front of the Word of God and reading and reading and reading yeah, and, learning right. and learning and learning and not be passive learners. Coming, you know, hearing, coming to conferences and church and, and hearing is a little different than learning. You have to really learn it. And so taking that personal responsibility really to chew and digest and swallow and eat the word of God.
1: Amen, amen. Thank you, brothers. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that our time together has not been in vain and we pray again for the word going forth with power from Alistair and from Ligon tomorrow. Thank you for Bobby's word to us tonight from your word. We pray, as we have been thinking about these last two nights, that we would keep a close watch on our life and our doctrine. Many people depend upon us. And if we take a few steps in the wrong direction and travel just a few degrees off of center for a long time, we can lead many people astray. And so, Lord, please help us. Keep us faithful, always coming back to your word. And may we keep, as of first importance as Stephen so ably reminded us, that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures and was raised again on the third day. What good news you give us to proclaim to the nations. We thank you. In Jesus we pray. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn more and join us at tgc.org donate.